You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 223, Stono Ferry. We last left the Southern Theater in episode 220 a few weeks ago, when the British Army reached the gates of Charleston, South Carolina, and had nearly bluffed the Americans into surrendering. The British commander in Savannah, General Augustine Prevost, other than maybe getting some forage, had primarily sent a division of troops into South Carolina as a feint to get Continental General Benjamin Lincoln to pull his troops back out of Georgia and defend the state of South Carolina. But when Lincoln kept the bulk of his forces in Georgia and the South Carolina militia really failed to turn out and put up a determined defense, the British had gotten all the way to Charleston. Once there, though, they were outnumbered and lacked the necessary artillery to reduce the city walls. As a result, they had no choice but to withdraw before General Lincoln could arrive. General Prevost had to abandon the short-lived siege of Charleston in May 1779 but he did not want to return to Savannah. Instead, the British moved to a defensive position on two coastal islands at Johns Island and James Island in the Atlantic Ocean, just a few miles from Charleston. From there, the British began moving soldiers along a series of coastal islands back toward the main garrison at Savannah. By avoiding the mainland, the British prevented the main Continental Army under Lincoln from surrounding them and forcing a surrender. The Americans did not have sufficient ship transports to make use of their numerical advantage against the islands. The British spent much of the next month transporting captured food, mostly rice and beef, back to Savannah to replenish supplies for the garrison. After all, that had probably been the main purpose of the foraging expedition that ended up threatening Charleston. General Prevost wrote to Secretary of State George Germain in London about his foray into South Carolina and how they almost captured Charleston, but for the lack of troops. Prevost's main concern was that he would never be able to hold territory in South Carolina unless he received reinforcements. The ministry had counted on raising several battalions of loyalists in Georgia and South Carolina backcountry. Led by a few regiments of British regulars, this loyalist army would hold Georgia and provide the numbers needed to recapture South Carolina. General Prevost reported that attempts to recruit loyalists in Georgia had been a failure. During the brief British occupation of Augusta, they sent out word for loyalists to rally to the king's standard. They'd managed to recruit only about 400 men, only 300 of which actually showed up for duty. After the Continentals recaptured Augusta, any loyalists who might have been inclined to consider enlistment had good reason to fear doing so they saw the British were not committed to holding territory, 
if they enlisted in a loyalist regiment and then the British left, they could be executed as traitors. At the very least, they could be imprisoned or expelled from the state and have their property confiscated. Few men were willing to rely on the chances that the British would remain and would prevail. Similarly, London counted on more support from local Indian tribes. Creek and Seminole warriors had been heavily lobbied by British agents. London bestowed gifts and made promises of land to tribes that assisted in retaking territory from the rebels. Very few warriors turned out, though. They had been burned so many times by going to war with the colonists, only to be forced to cede even more land and move further west. Like the Loyalists, native tribes had no faith that the regular army was committed to holding the southern colonies. They were not ready to be used as pawns and then sold out when the British found it convenient to do so. As a result, only a little more than a hundred warriors ever turned out, and nearly half of those went home after the foraging expedition in South Carolina ended. Despite the lack of recruits, Secretary of State Germain, back in London, took the news that Charleston had almost been taken with so few troops as good news. To him, it indicated that South Carolinians were not prepared to defend their state and that a slightly larger force could probably take Charleston very soon. Instead of sending reinforcements, Germain told Prevost what he had told all the generals in America who pleaded for reinforcements. They would have to make do with what they already had, and what they had should be more than enough. One group that did turn out for the British was the one that they did not particularly want. Around 3,000 slaves took advantage of the British presence to escape their plantations and fall in with the British army. In a few cases, the escaped slaves provided valuable intelligence about the area or where masters had hidden valuables. Some volunteered to serve as scouts for the army. The British, however, were not looking to emancipate slaves or recruit slaves into a loyalist army. They mostly saw the slaves as an annoyance, more mouths to feed that did not provide much to the effort. Lieutenant Colonel Mark Prevost, who was second in command to his older brother, General Augustine Prevost, reported that the army treated escaped slaves roughly in an attempt to discourage them from following the army. Most of the slaves remained anyway, knowing that their fate would be far worse if they were recaptured by their former masters. For almost all the slaves, there was no good outcome. Many hundreds huddled together in camps on islands near the British force. Hundreds of them died as diseases spread through the camps. The British did end up transporting many of the scapees back to Georgia, but they had no intention of setting them free. The slaves were mostly sold to loyalist masters in Georgia. Others were shipped to the West Indies, where they were sold to island plantations. If the British had hoped to encourage South Carolina loyalists to turn out to the British cause, their actions did not encourage it. The few native warriors who did join the British were blamed for their cruel and barbaric behavior against plantations. The regular soldiers themselves also plundered any locals they encountered, friend and foe alike. Stories abounded of British soldiers looting valuables from homes, even forcing ladies to turn over their wedding rings. Stories of rape also spread terror among the locals. Although the British officers occasionally punished plunderers or rapists with lashings, it seemed to do little to deter the practice. 
locals saw the British as threatening plunderers and not liberators. British plundering throughout most of the state, other than the coastal islands, had been halted by the return of the Continental Army under General Benjamin Lincoln. The Continental move into Georgia had opened up the British opportunity in South Carolina, and Lincoln's failure to move back quickly into South Carolina had given the British access to Charleston. South Carolina's political leaders had savaged Lincoln for his failure to block the British incursion in the first place. Added to his problems was the fact that most of his militia and state forces would see their enlistments expire in July or August. Most of these men were from Virginia and North Carolina and were eager to return home. Lincoln faced the all-too-common threat that his army was about to evaporate before they could subdue the enemy. Even before the incursion into South Carolina, Lincoln had written to Congress asking to be relieved of command. The New England general found the southern climate bad for his health and the level of local support beyond frustrating. Lincoln finally received permission from Congress to leave his command and return north. He informed South Carolina Governor John Rutledge of his decision to resign and that General William Moultrie would assume command. In his letter to Moultrie, Lincoln noted all of the unkind declarations made about him from Charleston and that he had clearly lost the confidence of the people. The general figured that since no one seemed to respect his leadership, the best thing he could do was step away and let another leader try his chances. Lincoln was then shocked when both Governor Rutledge and General Moultrie urged him to stay. Both men believed that the commander's departure would crush the army's morale. Lincoln also learned that the French fleet under Admiral d'Estaing, with over 4,000 French soldiers, planned to return and provide support to South Carolina by the end of the summer. With the support of Rutledge and Moultrie and word of French reinforcements, Lincoln ended up choosing to remain in command. In late May, Lincoln moved his army to within a half mile of the British camp on John's Island. Only the Stono River separated the island from the mainland. The British had actually posted the bulk of their troops on the mainland side of the river. The island side was too swampy, and the mainland side made it easier to conduct foraging raids. The British position, however, meant that not only was the river not an effective offensive barrier, it would also make any British retreat in the face of an enemy attack nearly impossible. Prevost had dug in entrenchments so that the British forces were prepared to repel any assault, but he really had no plan for retreat if the assault succeeded. On May 24th, the American advance guard clashed with a small group of British defenders still on James Island. The Americans managed to drive the British to the west onto John's Island. From there, the Americans crossed over to James Island, where they could reach the British from the rear. By May 30th, the Americans were in position. General Pulaski began skirmishing with the British to test their defenses. The British force had a total of about 2,200 men, with the bulk of them in the defenses at Stono Ferry. Although Lincoln had more soldiers overall, he did not have that many in position and available to assault the British defenses. Lincoln concluded that the British were too well entrenched. He did not trust his relatively untested army of mostly militia to charge into those entrenchments and eject the British defenders. The British had set up three lines of redoubts protected by artillery and erected abatis to discourage any attack. 
In the end, Lincoln ordered Pulaski to pull back. Instead, the two armies simply stared at each other for about two weeks. General Prevost had never intended to remain in South Carolina. He was looking for the easiest and safest way to return to Savannah. The general scouted the islands to his south, mapping out the best path back to Georgia. He left his brother, Colonel Mark Prevost, in command of the rear guard at Stono Ferry, which constituted the bulk of the British forces. On June 16th, General Prevost ordered his brother to take about half the force at Stono Ferry using boats they had captured, moved down the Stono River toward Savannah. The younger Prevost complied, leaving a smaller rear guard of about 800 men at Stono Ferry to cover the withdrawal. That rear guard fell to the command of Lieutenant Colonel John Maitland. The Prevost brothers had left Colonel Maitland in a tricky situation. The defenders were facing Americans on both sides, with militia forces in front of them on the mainland and Continentals on St. John's Island behind them. Maitland had his own regiment, the 71st, with about 350 British regulars. He also had a Hessian regiment with another 200 or so men, as well as 250 local loyalists who had marched with the British Army from Savannah into South Carolina. He had only one boat capable of transporting about 20 men at a time. On the evening of June 19th, a spy informed General Lincoln that the British were withdrawing from their position at Stono Ferry and that only around 600 men remained. With this intelligence, Lincoln held a council of war where the consensus was to attack before the remainder of the army could escape. That same night, the Americans assembled the bulk of their 3,000-man combined force and moved into position to attack the British rearguard that was still at Stono Ferry. By the morning of June 20th, Lincoln had his army in position. General Isaac Huger commanded the American left, which included several brigades of Continentals. General Jethro Sumner, a veteran of the Philadelphia campaign, who had only received his Continental Commission as a brigadier a few months earlier, commanded the right wing. His command consisted of mostly the Carolina militia and state regulars, who had finally accepted the idea that operating under a Continental Command was acceptable. In reserve, Lincoln held the Virginia militia under Colonel David Mason. Supporting all of them was a single artillery regiment with about eight field guns. The Americans would have to cross about a half mile of open field, then push their way through the Abatee before assaulting the three British redoubts. The British also had six field guns to deter the attack. Lincoln planned for the militia wing to strike first. He hoped the British defenders would move to reinforce that side. Then the Continentals would hit the weakened flank. But the militia got tangled in the underbrush, and the Continentals engaged with the British pickets first. Colonel Maitland heard the attack and assumed it was another American probe against his defenses. He sent out two companies of regulars to dispatch the attackers. Those companies realized they were facing more than a probe. About half of them were killed or wounded as the remainder fled back to their defensive positions. Lincoln had ordered his troops to storm the enemy position and use the bayonet. But about 60 yards out, the American advance faltered. The Americans paused to fire and would not advance. Since the Americans were in an open field and the British were behind earthworks, the American position was simply untenable. 
Lincoln personally rode into the front line and encouraged the men forward, but his words could not persuade them to charge into the British redoubts. Lincoln then brought up some artillery to blast at the redoubts, but the British counterfire from the artillery took their attention. Two artillery batteries fired at each other from only about 60 yards for about a half an hour, leading to terrible casualties on both sides. At one point, the British artillery was nearly out of ammunition. Captain James Moncrief led a charge against the American cannons, seized its ammunition, and brought it back to the British lines to resupply his artillery. At the same time, the militia on the American right managed to untangle themselves and assault the enemy lines. Maitland had deployed his Hessians on the far left flank, and that regiment took the bulk of this American assault. The South Carolina militia charged the Hessian redoubt, even though most of the attackers did not have bayonets. They still managed to force the Hessians to abandon the redoubt and run away. British Colonel Maitland, seeing this, sent his reserves to retake the Hessian redoubt and push back the Americans. General Lincoln was still focused on pushing forward the American left and did not realize the American right had overrun a redoubt. If he had, he might have pushed the right to renew its attack and overrun the forces that were now weakened. Instead, Lincoln saw his forces being decimated and ordered a withdrawal. As the Americans began to pull back, the British moved out of their defenses to pursue the retreating Americans. Seeing this, Lincoln sent in his reserve force of Virginia militia. The sight of American reinforcements halted the British counterattack as the men retreated back to their defensive redoubts. The Americans reported losses of 34 killed, 112 wounded, and 9 missing. The British reported 26 killed, 103 wounded, and only 1 missing. The most prominent American killed was Colonel Owen Roberts, who commanded the artillery. One relatively inconsequential death was that of 16-year-old militia private Hugh Jackson. Private Jackson succumbed to heat exhaustion several days after the battle. Hugh's younger brother, 13-year-old Andrew Jackson, served as a messenger during the battle and survived. His brother's death, however, was one of several events that gave the future president a lifelong hatred of the British. On June 23rd, three days after the battle, the British pulled out of Stono Ferry and moved down the coast. The British moved to Beaufort on Port Royal Island, about 40 miles closer to Savannah. There, a 300-man force, again under the command of Colonel Maitland, maintained a launching point for the next invasion of South Carolina. General Lincoln moved his Continentals to Sheldon, South Carolina, about 15 miles north of the British position at Beaufort. Several weeks after the battle, in July, Royal Governor James Wright returned to Savannah, along with Lieutenant Governor John Graham and Chief Justice Anthony Stokes. The purpose of their return was to restore normal crown rule to the colony of Georgia. Wright had come to Georgia as a teenager in 1730, two years before it formally received colonial status, when his father was appointed chief justice of the new colony. Wright had served as governor since 1760 and had owned more than 25,000 acres and 500 slaves before the revolution forced him out of the colony in 1776. For the next two and a half years, Wright had lobbied the ministry to retake Georgia, assuring them that most Georgians would certainly rally to the cause 
and support crown rule. On his return to Georgia, Wright attempted to recruit a political base that would support the king, but quickly understood what British military recruiters had already learned, that most Georgians were unwilling to commit to the royal government. Wright quickly changed his tune in letters to London, calling for more reinforcements of regulars to hold control of the state. He refused to call for elections, fearing that he would get a legislature full of representatives who supported independence. Instead, the civilian government just hunkered down with the army in Savannah, controlling only a few miles around the city. The American government still operated out of Augusta and controlled the remainder of the state. So, even though the British military was winning battles, it simply did not have the overwhelming force that it would take to get the populace to rally to their support. Savannah remained yet another British outpost in hostile American territory. Next week, though, we're returning to the West Indies, where the French and Spanish fight over the island of Grenada. Podcasters like Mike never know who will be inspired by their message. I'm Tracy Lawson, an author and historian. I once heard a podcaster comment, we rarely see history from a woman's point of view, and decided, hey, I'm a writer, I should do something about that. So I did. My novel, Answering Liberty's Call, Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge, is based on a true story about my sixth great-grandmother and has been called a grand and rollicking revolutionary adventure. While on a solo horseback journey to Valley Forge with supplies for her soldier husband, Anna takes on the responsibility of delivering an urgent message to General Washington. But it's not long before a mysterious man is hot on her trail and trying to steal the letter. Can Anna outwit him and make it safely to the picket line? A version of Anna's story for elementary school kids called Revolutionary Anna is the first book in my Liberty Bells series for young readers. Liberty Bell's books feature female patriots who advanced the cause of liberty, and they're a great way to get kids hyped up about America 250, which is just around the corner. My books are available in print and ebook on Amazon. For listeners of the American Revolution podcast, I'm offering 15% off personalized signed copies of books ordered through my website, tracylawsonbooks.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y-L-A-W-S-O-N books.com. Use the promo code AMREVPODCAST. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter Mike Hager. I really appreciate everyone who has made a pledge of support to help cover the expenses of this podcast. It really helps. If you want, go to patreon.com, look up American Revolution Podcast, and make a monthly pledge today. Support begins at $2 a month. If you're willing to pledge $10 a month or more, you get a free Revolutionary War magnet, which is different each and every month. It's my way of saying thanks for your commitment to covering the expenses of this podcast. I also want to thank Paul Kallenberger, William Cohane, and Jeffrey Black for generous gifts via PayPal. If you don't want to make an ongoing commitment, you can make a one-time gift via PayPal or Venmo. I have links on my podcast and blog site at the bottom of each episode.
Uh, last week, I had a live podcast in Quakertown, Pennsylvania, to celebrate the grand opening of Liberty & Company's new store there. The owner, Tyson France, has been a longtime supporter of this podcast, so I was happy to be part of his successful opening. I do have one correction from last week. I talked about the John Freeze Rebellion. I've been calling him John Freeze for years, but it got into my head that I might be pronouncing the name wrong, so right before the show, I went on the internet and looked up some pronunciations of his name. I found a bunch of suggestions, all of which pronounced it John Fries. So I used that pronunciation during the show and sometimes reverted back to Freeze, so I was kind of going back and forth in the show between Fries and Freeze. After the show, several locals pulled me aside to assure me that Freeze, not Fries, is the correct pronunciation. So, so much for internet pronunciation guides. It's been a rather hectic time for me lately. I've had a few interviews for upcoming special episodes that involve some bigger name authors. I'm still trying to find the time to edit and release those interviews, so stay tuned. We've got some fun special episodes coming up soon. This week, though, we covered the Battle of Stono Ferry, which is primarily remembered because it resulted in the death of Andrew Jackson's older brother. The battle itself was a reminder to the British that any expedition outside of their secured cities would be challenged and would lead to casualties. This was the constant pounding that everyone hoped would eventually push the British to give up in frustration. I've already recommended several good books about the Georgia and South Carolina campaigns, which cover Stono Ferry. So you can go back and look at my past recommendations if you want to read more on today's topic. But my book recommendation this week, I want to recommend a new release that may interest you. It's called Revolutionary Surgeons, Patriots and Loyalists on the Cutting Edge by Per Olaf Hasselgren. The book profiles about 10 surgeons from the Revolutionary War era. Some are famous for their role in the movement, such as Joseph Warren or Benjamin Rush. Others are known more for their medical pioneering, like John Morgan and John Jones. It's an interesting look at the founding era from a medical perspective. The author, Hasselgren, is a longtime surgeon from Boston. He holds several positions with Harvard Medical School. He's written several medical books, but this is his first book related to history. So, if the topic interests you, get a copy of the new book, Revolutionary Surgeons. My online recommendation is a Ph.D. thesis called Loyalism in South Carolina, 1765-1785, by Robert Woodward Barnwell, Jr. It's a close look at the Loyalists in South Carolina before, during, and after the Revolution. South Carolina was a particularly divided colony, with some rather hardcore patriots as well as some very committed Loyalists. Navigating the war and ending up on the losing side was certainly a difficult proposition and this work covers that pretty well. The thesis was written in 1941. It contains hundreds of well-researched pages on the topic, and the author later served as a historian for the U.S. Air Force. The thesis, Loyalism in South Carolina, is available on archive.org, and as always, I've included direct links on my website and blog. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. My question this week, asks, why didn't the British burn down Monticello in 1781? 
Now, this question comes from a couple of years ahead of where we are in the story of the Revolution. In 1781, the British were marching through Virginia and conducted a raid on Thomas Jefferson's home at Monticello. Jefferson had just completed his second term as governor of the state. Jefferson received advance warning of the raid just hours before it took place. He was able to get his family away and rode off himself just minutes before the British arrived. No reason was ever given for the failure to burn Jefferson's estate. The British commonly did burn homes of traitors. British General Johnny Burgoyne famously burned American General Philip Schuyler's home in New York shortly before Burgoyne had to surrender and became Schuyler's guest. It would not have been surprising to anyone if the raiders had looted and torched Jefferson's plantation. Now, the man who raided Jefferson's home at Monticello was Bannister Tarleton, who had burned many other homes during the war. The man with the nickname Bloody Ban was particularly hated by the Americans and had a reputation for brutality. He had been a part of the troop that had captured General Charles Lee years earlier in the war. Tarleton had no compunctions about burning the homes of other rebels. On an earlier campaign, Tarleton burned the home of Colonel Thomas Sumter after failing on a mission to capture him. One distinction could be that between military targets and civilian officers, Jefferson, of course, was an elected official, not an officer in the army. However, I don't think Tarleton would have found that distinction particularly persuasive. One reason may have been Tarleton's mission was to kill or kidnap Jefferson himself, not destroy property. Burning a home might have seemed like an act motivated by a temper tantrum for missing his prey. Tarleton was not only after Governor Jefferson, though, but also members of the state legislature who were also thought to be in the area. He did not want to stop and take the time to burn the home, which also would have served as an alert to others in the area of the British presence. His focus on the mission was on capturing rebel leaders, not destroying property. Tarleton did not spend much time at the house. Once convinced that Jefferson was not at the site, he rushed off in search of other targets. Another theory that I've read was that Tarleton was a gentleman who respected fine things and may have found Monticello too nice to destroy. I know calling Bloody Ban a gentleman might rankle some. He was known as a brutal fighter and hated by Americans. That said, he did see himself as a gentleman with education and an appreciation of culture. Jefferson's home was filled with fine artwork and scientific instrument. That could have had some impact on his actions. That, however, is just speculation. Tarleton never really commented on the reasons behind any of his decisions that day. If you have a question that you would like answered, please email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com or reach out to me on social media. I'm at Amrev on Twitter. You can also join our American Revolution podcast group on Facebook or ask me a question on Quora. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call 
Redacted History. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.